Life seems like an endless series of choices. Uh, yesterday I was driving through Chick-fil-A and I had to make a choice. It was going to be Chick-fil-A, ranch, barbecue, or honey mustard. And all I wanted was a chicken biscuit and uh, hash browns. Uh, there are choices of all kinds all the time. And since choices are inescapable, uh, you know the old philosopher Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. To prove his existence, he said he thinks. I think we can change that and say, I choose, therefore I am, because choices are inescapable. Now, some choices have very minimal consequences. What color of socks am I going to wear tomorrow morning? Red, green, or black? Oh, it probably doesn't matter to anybody but me. Um, some others may have some more um, serious consequences. What am I going to have for lunch today? Is it going to be arugula salad or chicken fried steak? Um, It might be something even more significant if it is something like this. Am I going to exercise patience so that my marriage can flourish? Or am I going to insist that it's going to be my way or the highway? Now, that's got different consequences. Then we have moral choices uh, with enormous consequences. Am I going to do what I know is right? Or am I going to justify doing what I know is right, do I know is wrong, and I know that very well. How can some things be so right? When, or how can, I, how can you feel that it is so right when it is so wrong? How do we justify these things? We ask all kinds of questions as we make these kinds of decisions. Does God really have anything to say about our decisions? Well, let's look at it. We look into Genesis chapter 4, and I think God paints for us a beautiful picture of choices and consequences as it applies to the first family in Genesis chapter 4. To set the stage, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we, real, we, we find that God has created Adam and Eve. He has placed them in a garden, and then he told Adam you can eat of every tree in this garden. You, have, you like apples today? Go for the apple tree. You like oranges today? Go for the orange tree. You like tropical mangoes? Go for the mango tree or the pear tree, any tree. But of that tree, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat because when you do, you will die. So many choices, a lot of freedom, but one restriction. And that's typically how God works, doesn't it? Doesn't he? When he restricts us, it is his expression of love so that we don't destroy ourselves. It is kind of like telling our children who are playing in the front yard, don't cross the road. Now, we're not doing that to kill their joy. We're doing that so that we protect them from being run over by a car. It is an expression of love. So when you listen to God, do you feel that God is very restrictive? Do you feel that he is restricting you from all the thrills you could possibly have? Trust him. It is an expression of love because he does not want to see you self-destruct. So his restrictions are an expression of love. Going back to Adam and Eve, what do they do? Uh, they, they have this freedom, but one restriction. They choose to disobey. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed. Adam will now have to sweat and toil in order to eat. Eve will have multiplied 
pain in childbirth. She will want to control Adam. Adam will dominate her. And there you have it. All the seeds of relational strife and physical strife. All of that locked into one event in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 3 ends with uh, Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden. Now, if you were to go from the end of Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Genesis chapter 4, that will be a beautiful story that bring a tear to your eye. Look at this, verse 26, chapter 4. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you'd think, well, they got driven out of uh, the Garden of Eden, and now they've learned a lesson, and everybody becomes worshipers, and they all live happily ever after. That would be so beautiful a story, a beautiful ending. But obviously, that's not the case. We're going to see all the gruesome details in chapter 4. Now, you would think, having, having faced the consequences, they would have learned a lesson. Perhaps they would have trained their children or told their children, look, these are the consequences of disobedience. Or the children may have just observed it and learned some things firsthand. That's what you think, so that they wouldn't repeat the parents' mistakes. But that's not the case. So we look at Genesis chapter 4 to find out what really happens and look at this portrait just a little more closely. If you look at that passage, you find there are two bookends. It starts with Cain and Abel being born, birth, and then worship. They come to a worship service with offerings. And it also ends with birth, Seth was born, and, 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 and to Seth, Enosh. And then they call upon the name of the Lord, there's worship. So birth and worship, birth and worship, two bookends. In between, you have this passage that's divided into three sections. And it starts with chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and Adam knew Eve. And then we see in verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. And then come down to verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. So you got two bookends, birth and worship. Adam knew his wife, Cain knew his wife, Adam knew his wife again. So that kind of sets the framework for, uh, for this passage. And so now we can dig deeper and explore what is it that God would have us learn through this account. Verse 1 starts with Adam knew his wife. And uh, you have here, obviously, the first record of uh, sexual relations, of pregnancy and birth, first instance. Uh, and uh, Eve says, I have... Uh, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, literally, it might mean something like, I have acquired or created a man with God. Obviously with God, because Adam was really of no earthly help in the situation. So uh, that's what Eve feels she's done. And then she bears Abel, verse 2. Uh, and his name means breath or vapor or vanity. And we are not told much more about their early lives. We are not told what kind of schools they attend, public school, private school, classical school. We don't know. We don't know anything about their swimming lessons or their soccer practices. But right off the bat, we are told one thing, what they did. Abel kept sheep and Cain worked the ground. One was a shepherd and the other was a farmer. 
Cain is working the ground that was cursed in chapter 3, and Abel is ruling over living animals. In the course of time, uh, or after a designated period of time, uh, verse 3, they bring an offering. And it says, Cain brought an offering of, uh, of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So, um, the only difference between these, other than the type of offering, one was from the ground, one was fat portions, which, which means the fattest of the firstborn is what Abel brought. The only difference is in the descriptors, right? Other than the offering, the only difference is in the descriptors. The firstborn and the fattest in the case of animals, the other was just an offering. So what we find is how God responds to this we find that the Lord had regard for Abel. He looks at Abel's offering and says, wonderful. And, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering what's going on here. Cain works so hard. The ground was cursed. Sweat and toil, and he brings an offering to God. And all that Abel had to do, he had to take the sheep to the pasture. They did what they need to do. They reproduced. He just picked the plump little firstborns and brought it to God. What's going on here? I mean, uh, is, is God unfair? Does God have a preference for the type of work you do? Does he prefer ranchers over farmers? Does he prefer teachers over investment bankers? Well, you realize that if you read further, you'll understand what is really going on here and why Abel's offering was accepted. Uh, if you look at Exodus in, uh, in chapter 13, we have, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. That's what God says. And similarly about fat, it has a very positive connotation for sacrifice. It says, and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. Now, when these people brought their firstborns and their fattest of their firstborns, they were really acting out a certain truth. What they were saying was, look, God is the source of all that we have and we are going to bring the firstborn and the best of them to God even if we are left with lean animals, and even if we don't have any animals, because we are acting out the fact that we trust that God is truly the source of all they had. And that's what we do when we worship and we give, isn't it? When we give first before we spend, we are proclaiming with our actions that what we have is a gift from God. All we are doing is returning a small portion of what he has given us. So giving in worship is more than dropping something in the plate or adding our credit card numbers online. It is really an expression that God is truly the source of all that we have. And we are acting it out. We don't give God something because he needs anything. We give God because we desperately need something. And what is that? We desperately need to have our right perspectives that God is truly the source of all that we have and everything, everything else is only a resource. 
when we confuse sources and resources, we will worship the wrong person or thing. So our giving is just an acting out of our faith and our trust that God is the source of all that we have. Now, coming back to, coming back to Cain here, could it be that Cain didn't know what was right? Maybe Abel kind of had some secret knowledge and Cain didn't know. Well, if you look at 7, verse 7, it says, God is asking Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So Cain knew what was right. He just chose to disobey. That's what happened. So it was not Cain's ignorance that he did what he did. It was simply because he chose to do what he wanted to do. So Cain chose to disobey. So Cain's disobedience, Adam's, uh, Abel's obedience. We also see in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel uh, brought to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain by faith. Now, if you look at all the, the characters in that hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, you find that they're all characterized by faith. Take, for example, Abraham. He was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he took God at his word and went for it, even though God had told him that you are going to have descendants like the stars in the sky. It didn't matter to him because God said, sacrifice your son, he went for it. Noah was asked to build an ark long before he ever probably knew what a flood was all about. But he did it for, I think it was 120 years or so. He did that before the ark was put in service. He did that by faith. So you realize here that Abel, he came to God obeying something even when it probably made no earthly sense. So that was a reason for God's accepting him. It was this act of faith that brought, uh, the act of faith with which he brought the offering that was acceptable. So now you say, well, all right, you're talking about obedience. What on earth does that mean? What do I have to obey? Well, let me read for you just a few passages of scripture. Uh, Just listen and, 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 and respond to it in your own minds and think about obedience. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Easy to understand, isn't it? We're called to obedience. Let me read a few more. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Then he goes on to say, but sexual immorality and all impurity 
or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So wherever you open the Bible, it is pretty clear what God's point of view is. There might be some difficult passages, but the important thing for us to remember is this. Number one, don't be overwhelmed saying, I've got to know all of this before I can start obeying. We don't have to. We just have to start obeying what we know we've got to do. What we know we have to obey. And let me also throw out something else. If we think of obedience in terms of a checklist and a to-do list on a spreadsheet and try to do it by brute force, I guarantee you that you will be frustrated and stressed out. Obedience has to flow out of a sense of gratitude. If God so loved me and rescued me, paid the price of my sin, gave me eternal life, the least I can do is live a life of obedience. Amen? That is what God is calling us to do, to respond out of love and gratitude, to live a life of obedience, and that is what God favors. So, let's go on with the, uh, with the, with the text here. So, Cain then is very angry. Cain was very angry and his face fell. He was fuming mad. Now let's look at what God is trying to do. Now we saw what Cain did, but look at what God is doing. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So he's giving him an opportunity to correct. He can correct his trajectory here, and he can do the right thing. He knows what is acceptable. So gives him an opportunity for correction. And if that were not enough, he even presents a warning. Watch the next piece. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He has the ability to control that situation. And so if he were not going to listen to the correction piece, God is warning him and saying, look, this is going to get real ugly. Heed the warning and make the change. And what does Cain do? Verse 8, he spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. One short sentence. We don't know what he spoke. He spoke, he rose, he killed. Everything is settled. All done. That's what Cain did. He disobeyed. He decided he didn't want any correction. He ignored and rejected the warning. And the end is he murders his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? So God is now giving Cain another chance. Confess. Not only did he correct him, he warned him. Now God in his grace and mercy gives him an opportunity to confess. Where is your brother? And look at Cain's response. He has the audacity to say, why do you ask me? God, you are the keeper. In Psalm 121, we read that the Lord is your keeper. 
If you are the keeper, why on earth are you asking me about my brother? I don't keep my brother. That's Cain's response. And so, um, and in verse 11, we see that Cain is cursed from the ground. The same ground that swallowed up Abel's blood is now cursing Cain. And this is the first time that a human being is cursed. Because in the last chapter, it was the snake and the ground that was cursed. So what happens? Verse 12, uh, Cain now becomes a fugitive and a wanderer. He has lost everything, his identity, his community, his sense of belonging, all gone, and he is becoming a wanderer. So what does he do? Verse 13, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. So now he's protesting the punishment. After all that he's done, ignores correction, warning, and finishes off his brother, now he's protesting the punishment that's allocated to him. And now, watch what God does. God says, look, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. In spite of all that Cain did, God put a mark on him. Now, we don't know whether that was a tattoo or a t-shirt. But he did have a mark, unmistakable, that nobody would touch him. That is the grace of God in the face of total disobedience and rejection. You say God is not a God of grace and mercy in the Old Testament? God is absolutely a God of grace and mercy all through the Bible. And we can come to him even if we have failed miserably. And that's what we see, God, a God of grace, offering it all up to Cain that he's not going to be attacked. Nobody is going to touch him. God wants to be the keeper of the man who did not want to be the keeper of his brother. We barely give people what they deserve. God generously gives us what we don't deserve. And that is the grace of God. Verse 16. Cain is a wanderer and he settles in the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. So the wanderer settles in the land of wandering, east of Eden. And now let's see what happens. Next section. Cain knew his wife. Things will improve. Well, she conceived and bore Enoch and they have started building a city. Wait a minute. I thought he was going to be wandering. Now he started building a city. Now, we don't know why that happened, but cities were always built for protection. And probably, probably, uh, Cain said, well, God wants me to wander. I'm going to build a city, and I'm going to flourish here, and, and things are going to be different. Maybe. That's speculation. We don't know. But certainly, we know here that he builds a city. And then seven generations go by, Enoch, Irad, Mehujel, Methushel, and then comes Lamech, who takes two wives. So, first instance of polygamy in the Bible. And then, he has children. He's got two wives, Ada and Zillah, and they bore Jabel. He was a father of uh, those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Camels, herd, cattle, and, and the rest of it. So, good agriculture uh, kind of people. And then, you have his brother named Jubal, who was a musician. He was a father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. 
he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So civilization is flourishing. Morals are declining fast and furious. There's agriculture, fine arts, technology. All of that is flourishing. And, 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 and God allows those things to flourish. But things are declining so bad because now you see the focus shifts to Lamech, verse 23 and 24. Lamech tells uh, his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, your wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So Lamech now brags about killing a young man, probably a teenager. And uh, he is a whole lot more depraved than Cain, his ancestor. And, and now he boasts, and he says Lamech would be avenged 77 times because he was unjustly harmed. Now think about Eve. All through these seven generations, Eve is watching all this play out. And she's probably thinking, goodness, all I did was eat a fruit. And is this what I have to endure? Are these the kinds of consequences that go on for generations? Adam to Cain to Lamech. One eats a forbidden fruit. The second kills his brother. And the third kills a young child and arrogantly threatens more wickedness. Now, interestingly, that's the end of Cain and his line. It's not talked about anymore. He's totally sidelined from anything significant in the Bible. And God's action amidst all of this is again one of grace, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For... um, She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's successors pioneered cities. Seth's firstborn pioneers worship. God is sovereign, and he blesses, and he is full of grace. So that really brings us to the question, doesn't it? What are we going to do when we are faced with a choice? Will we obey or will we disobey? If we disobey and we have correction thrown across our paths, will we ignore it or will we embrace it? If you go one step further and we have warning coming across our screen... Will we reject it or embrace it? And if we're still gone, if God provides an opportunity for a confession, will we do that or will we keep our merry way and walk away from him? Here is the way of Cain. Disobedience rejects correction, ignores warning, will not repent. And he leaves no godly influence. Will you go the way of Cain? And in a room of this size, it's quite possible that some of us 
have gone the way of Cain for too long. God is calling us to confess. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you do that today? And if you're here wondering, can God even forgive my sin? I have good news for you. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of your sin and mine. He took the death that you and I deserved, paying a debt that he didn't owe, paying a debt that we couldn't pay. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you have never believed in Jesus, call on him. May I encourage you to trust in him. Believe in him so that you can experience forgiveness and enjoy everlasting life. Father, we thank you for your word. It shows us in living color how gracious you are to us, how merciful you are to us. In spite of our ways, you pursue us. Help us, Lord, to respond to you. That we might respond to you out of gratitude, out of love for you, respond in obedience, that we might be found faithful. That is our prayer. And Lord, help us to that, and we ask in Jesus' name.